so we're thrilled that you all are here uh, this morning. So there's an old parable about a man who, when tax time came around, he presented a, a rotten fish to the tax collectors. We then took it back to the king, who was very, very upset. Called the man to the, to the palace and, and said, I'm going to punish you severely for your act of disgrace, but I'm going to give you a choice. You can either eat the rotten fish that you gave me, or you could take a hundred lashes, or you could pay a hundred gold coins. The man thought and said, well, if I just eat the fish, I won't get beaten and I can keep my money. And so he said, I'll eat the fish. And so they placed this rotten fish in front of him that filled the room with a stench. It was, it was nearly unbearable, but he said, if I could just get through this, then I'll be okay. But about halfway through eating that fish, he realized I can't take another bite. And he turned to the king and said, would you please give me another choice? And he said, yes. He said, then I'll choose the 100 lashes so I can keep the 100 coins. They gave him, they started the beating, but about halfway through those lashes, he screamed out and said, I can't take it anymore, please stop. And he turned to the king and said, can I have another choice? And he said, well, there's only one left, pay the 100 coins. So the man walked over, paid the 100 gold coins, and he was allowed to leave the palace. And yet as he walked out penniless, he realized I could have just paid that fine in the first place not walked out with a bloodied back and, and a nauseous stomach. I just paid too high of a price. You know, that's exactly what pride does to us. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus for some time now, and today we're going to start to enter a passage that is going to introduce us to the ten plagues of Egypt, where Pharaoh absolutely refuses to answer God's command when Yahweh says, let my people go. Or it would be better translated, send my people away. But he absolutely refuses. Until eventually, he lets them go. But by the time he lets them go, his land has been, become contaminated. His kingdom becomes decimated. And families in the kingdom are absolutely devastated. He paid a much greater price than he needed to. If he would have only answered Yahweh on the first time. Pride always comes with a price. Whenever we stand up to what God desires for us, there is a cost that comes with it. Now, I would guess most of you are familiar with what we would call the ten plagues of Egypt. And, and yet... Um, I'm not going to spend much time at all on talking about what are the ten plagues, but rather, why were there ten plagues? I know many of you are like, that's, that's pretty simple. I mean, Pharaoh wouldn't let him go, so God struck him with this plague, and Pharaoh wouldn't let him go, so God struck him with this plague. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to keep an open mind as we approach the scriptures today. And Today we're going to just get through a portion of the first plague and just lay a foundation for the plagues to come. So Exodus chapter 7, verse number 14 is where we're going to begin. And if, if you're new uh, with us today, whenever we see the words, the Lord, and the Lord is all capital letters, that is the revealed name of Yahweh that God has given to Moses at the burning bush. So we'll say the words, name Yahweh in place. Exodus 7, 14 says this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. 
stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh. Now notice this next phrase because we're going to come back to it. By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn, and shall turn it into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of egypt even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone moses and aaron did as the lord commanded as yahweh commanded in the sight of pharaoh and in the sight of his servants he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the nile and all the water in the nile turned into blood i'm going to stop there for today and again, I want to remind you, we're not going to put our focus on what the ten plagues were, but why the ten plagues took place. I want to point out, though, that, that when we say ten plagues, what we have to understand is there's only one of the ten plagues that's actually a plague. A plague is a disease that would affect humanity or, or living animals, and only one of them, the one that affects the livestock, is the only one that's actually a plague. And so why would we call them the plagues? Well, the Hebrew word used for plague also means strike or blow. And so what we're, what we're realizing is that these ten plagues were actually God, remember how he said to Moses, I will remove them with a mighty right hand. This is God's hand coming to strike and then strike and then strike Egypt time after time after time. And, and, and these strikes weren't random. They, he wasn't like a boxer trying to fit it in where he could. These were precise and calculated and purposeful and deliberate strikes that he was bringing against Egypt. And what I would contend to you is that the plagues, through the plagues, through these ten strikes, Yahweh, Yahweh was revealing himself to the world. He was revealing himself. Let me show you what I mean. In Exodus chapter 7, verse number 5, and in Exodus chapter 7, verse number 17, here's what we see. In verse 5, he says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Why? Why reveal himself to the Egyptians? Because the Egyptians lived in a land, in a world that was filled with all kinds of different gods, and he was showing them Yahweh is the one true God. And in verse 17, he's speaking directly to Pharaoh, saying, Pharaoh, by these plagues, you shall know that I am Yahweh. Why would he say that to Pharaoh? Because Pharaoh himself claimed to be a God. And he's saying, there is only one. So Yahweh was using these plagues to reveal himself. And you say, well, how in the world, how in the world did these 10 devastating things that happened to a land in Egypt, how does he reveal himself to the world and i'd love love to take you on a short journey we're going to start go back to creation very briefly really simple elementary question how many days of creation can you tell me how many days of creation total how many days of creation seven yeah there were seven i know he created it in six 
rested on the seventh, but that was a part of the creation narrative. Seven days of creation. Have you ever asked yourself, why did it take God seven days? Like, why can't he get it done in a day? Why, why does he take this long and purposeful process? And, and then think about how did he create? Well, he used his, used his words. And other, other than being able to reach down into the dirt and create Adam and then breathe the breath of his, his breathe life into him, through his word, God created. Guess how many times in the creation narrative you would find the words, and God said? Ten. Numbers in the Bible are very important. Ten is the number of completion. Seven is the number of perfection. In seven days, and with ten sayings, God created a perfect and complete world. But he did it in a very purposeful pattern. He would create space, and then he filled the space. If you think about creation, in day one, he says, let there be let there be light. In day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars to fill the space. In day two, we have air and water are separated. And in day five, he creates to fill the air, birds, and to fill the water, fish. In day three, he creates land. And then in day six, he creates animals and man to fill the land. So there's this purposeful pattern that we see that God does his work in creation. He is speaking everything into his existence in 10 sayings. He takes seven days to do it. And so the creation narrative is telling us far more than how God created the world. It's telling us who created the world and what he is like. He doesn't just make sun, moon, and stars and then say, oh, what do I do with these? Uh, they've got to go over here, so let there be light. No, it didn't work that way. He made space or a domain, and then he filled those spaces, and he filled those domains. And that teaches us who Yahweh is, right? He's a God who creates with his word, which that becomes very important. When we look at his word and we see Jesus coming as the word made flesh, when we go to his word and we say, Lord, how are you ever going to keep these promises? And he says, I can create anything I need with my word. We see that he's the God who makes space, but he doesn't leave space empty. So if you ever feel like, God, how come you took that person out of my life? How come you took that job away from me? How come you took something that I thought was so valuable to me? Why did you take it away? What is this space in my life for? Oh, just wait. He's getting ready to fill it with something He's a God of control, not a God of chaos. We see that through his orderly purpose and plan. He's a God who's willing to place his hands into the dirt with humanity, which will matter to us when we make a mess of our lives and wonder, does he want anything to do with me now? Oh, yes, he loves to work in the mess of our lives. He's a God who rests to enjoy the work that he created. And that's so important for us to understand. We can rest in his work and we can rest in the work that we partner together with God. And we sit back and we enjoy it. Yesterday was, I know that this is personal, so forgive me, but yesterday watching Trinity graduate and she got to sing a song at graduation, I, I sat back and just thought, I'm so blessed. 
I didn't do it. I mean, people have come up and say, you got a great daughter, man. Good job. Like, look, you got to understand, you know how much I messed up? That's the work of our good, gracious God. And I, I love to celebrate that. And so the seven days and the ten sayings of creation reveal Yahweh as the creator and as the sustainer of a perfect seven, complete ten world, right? Watch what happens as we go through the plagues. Yahweh is going to reveal his good work of he's going he's going to undo unravel his good work of creation He's going to take away a blessing that he gave and he's going to fill that space chaos Let me show you think with me. I need you need your mind for a moment. What was the last act of creation? Think with me. What was the last act of creation? God gives life to Eve his last act of creation now let's watch the unraveling what was the first plague water turned to blood blood outside of the body always equals death from life the last act of creation to blood the first plague what was the first act of creation let there be light and we're going to put the first, we're going to put the Passover and the death of the firstborn in its own category. But if we were to say, what is the last plague before we get to that firstborn? There was darkness over all the land. We see the unravel, we see the good creation and then the unraveling of creation throughout the plagues. And so you say, well, how does, what does this reveal about Yahweh? Well, we said there was seven days and 10 words to creation Get this, we already know there's 10 plagues. What's the seventh? Guess how many times in the narrative we find the phrase, you will know that I am Yahweh. Purpose of the 10 complete plagues was so that there was a perfect understanding of who Yahweh was. So we see the ten plagues and the seven phrases reveal Yahweh as the ruler. I am in charge of creation, but as the redeemer, the one who is going to save his people through the plagues because he is the one who is in charge because he created this perfect and complete world and he is going to set it back in order. Now, not perfectly yet, but perfectly to come. And that's so huge because it gives us this understanding that there's a purpose behind these punishments and these plagues. And we sometimes think in our life, God, why are you striking me like this? And God, he never strikes without a purpose. He never strikes for just mere punishment. He is always trying to show his children, his people, this is who I am and you've forgotten. There's a beautiful pattern to the plagues. I say, I know, I know it sounds strange because the plagues were so destructive, but there's this beautiful pattern. You put these things in groups of three. I'll challenge you as you go home and read this week. Here's what you're going to notice. Plague one, plague four, and plague seven. The first of these three sets, every one of them, Yahweh tells Moses, go to tell Pharaoh early in the morning at the Nile what's about to come. Verse fourth and seventh. The second, fifth, and eighth, he says, go to his house and tell him about what's to come. But the third and the sixth and the ninth, 
There's no warning. They just take place just like that without any warning. They say, well, what do these patterns teach us about Yahweh? Why would that matter? Oh, let's just take the first one. The first and the fourth and the seventh when Yahweh tells Moses, go to Pharaoh early in the morning at the Nile River and tell him the plague that is about to come. Now, let's be honest. Let's be honest. If we're looking at the Bible as a whole, do we really care that Moses went early in the morning to the Nile River to talk to Pharaoh? Do we really care about that? Is that important whatsoever? Not to us. But it was to Yahweh. Because remember, Pharaoh claims to be a god. There is something that human beings must do regularly that gods do not have to do. Go to the bathroom. Guess when Pharaoh took care of his business. And guess where he took care of his business. There was, the, the Egyptians were restricted. There was a law that would not let the Egyptians leave their homes until a certain time in the morning because they wanted to protect the image of Pharaoh as a god, that he was more than humanity, so nobody could see the humanity of Pharaoh. Except this is when Yahweh says, hey Moses, go to the bank of the Nile early in the morning, right where Pharaoh's taking care of his business, and you remind him, you're not a god. But the one who is, he's about to act. And this is how he's about to act. Like, isn't that cool? But, th but think about that. If he goes and tells Pharaoh, who's a god, what the true god is going to do, that's not very wise tactics if, these are, if this is a real battle. If, if one leader tells another leader, this is what I'm going to do, it doesn't, that's not really good unless the one leader knows there's nothing this leader can do about it. Go ahead, Pharaoh. You think you're a god. I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do. What are you going to do about it? And what I love is that, that in, in these ancient civilizations, the way to bring disarray to a group of people was to take out their leader. But Yahweh chooses not to remove Pharaoh. He leaves Pharaoh sitting right where he is, and he removes the kingdom, the greatest, most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. He removes it right from underneath of the Pharaoh while he is still sitting on his throne. Like, you see the, this, this simple little pattern. Yahweh is making a statement. I am the I am. I am powerful. Not Pharaoh. And he was showing that to the Egyptians. He was showing that to Pharaoh. And he was showing that to himself. Here's another, just a real quick pattern. The plagues again. Remember, they're an unraveling of God's good creation. How did creation start? Creation came from the heavens down eventually to the earth. Well, these plagues are going to unravel and they're going to start from the earth and work their way back to the heavens because the first, second, and third, you look down to see the blood and you see the frogs and you see the dust that will turn to lice. And four, five, and six is the land between the ground and the sky where you see the, the, the flies and the livestock dying and the boils on men. And, and then seven, eight, and nine, you look to the heavens as the hail falls and as the locusts swarm the skies and as darkness overtakes it. 
Like this isn't, this is, God is working in a very purposeful way to show people that, hey, listen, I'm the God of all things and I am the God of all places. I'm below you, I'm beside you, and I'm above you. Man, when I, when I was thinking through that, I immediately took my mind, went to Psalm chapter 139, where David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths of the earth, you're there. Like, this is exactly what Yahweh is showing his people. I am powerful, but then, don't you love this comforting but I am with you. You can't go anywhere where my power isn't, and you can't go anywhere where my presence isn't. Don't we all need to be reminded of that? Times. There's a purposeful pattern to the plagues, and we'll go, we'll see some more as we go on. But it's Yahweh revealing himself. And here's what we find. The first three plagues, as we work through them next week, the first three plagues will reveal that Yahweh exists. He's a creator. This world has a creator. Atheists say there is no God. Well, then how can blood be created? In, how, can, how can we create blood from water? How can we create millions of... When I say we, I'm, I don't know why I'm saying we. I had nothing to do with it. How can he create frogs, millions of frogs out of nothing? And how can he create lice from the dust of the ground? And so we see he's going to reveal himself as the existing creator. But the next three plagues are not going to be more than just as a creator. We're going to show that he doesn't create something and just step back and say, you're on your own. No, he is very active in the laws of nature. He's very active in the lives of his people because there's what he does. He sends the flies. He sends the livestock with the disease. And he sends the boils on people. But he puts a division. And it'll be only over here. And this side won't. So he creates... And then he places a separation or a division. But then last, we see this, and this is so amazing. In these last three plagues, we, we see that Yahweh has absolute power. Because again, this was a land of many gods, but each god was only in charge of one thing. The god of thunder, the god of rain, the god of the sun, the god of the Nile. There was only a god over one thing. The Egyptians believed that when it didn't rain... The rain god was upset with them. So they, of course, would try to appease him with sacrifices and all kinds of gifts. Or, if it didn't rain, it was because the sun god was battling and defeating at the moment the rain god and preventing him from being able to send the rain. But then all of a sudden, in plague number seven, from the sky falls hail and fire it's two different gods unless wait unless it's all coming from one god plague number nine there's darkness and then there's light and you can't have light and darkness at the same time well unless unless there's only one god that's bringing both light and darkness so we see again, Yahweh is, is bringing these plagues not just to punish Pharaoh, but to reveal himself. But here's the thing. What the plagues could not do was force anyone to respond in a certain way 
to Yahweh. That he might see, oh yes, he might recognize, oh yes, but then it, they, the plagues did not cause them to respond in a certain way. Pharaoh saw Yahweh for who he was, but he failed to respond to him as Lord of his life. Pharaoh continued to try to control the circumstances and do things his way. And as we go on, you'll see sometimes he'll give in a little bit, but he's going to take it right back again. And the same thing is happening today. There are those people who just for a season, they'll, they'll recognize God's goodness. Maybe through a, through a celebration, sometimes through a tragedy. And their eyes will be turned back to God and say, I'm so sorry I've been away from you, but you've blessed me. Or I'm so sorry I've been away from you and, and, and I can tell that I need you now. We run back to him, but sometimes as the road becomes smooth again, we walk away and do our own thing. So just three words I wanted you to take away this morning. Three words. Acknowledgement, awe, and anticipation. Jesus, when he comes, is called the I Am. He takes that name upon himself, the I Am. Yahweh was the I Am. That means Jesus is Yahweh. So when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he comes and he, just like Yahweh did his signs and wonders, Jesus is coming to do signs and wonders to clearly display to the world, this is who I am. And he does it this time, not to a, an enemy group of his. He comes to his own people, the Jews, and he says, this is who I am. And Jesus comes performing three miracles that the Jews said only the Messiah would do this. One of them was to heal a leper. This is crazy. The book of Leviticus the priests are told what to do when a leper comes to the temple after he's been healed from his leprosy. It had never happened because no one had ever been healed from leprosy until Jesus shows up. The second one was the casting out of a demon from someone who could not speak. Casting out of demons was, no, was not, a, was not a, a, something new when Jesus came. But what always happened was they would find out the name of the demon in order to cast the demon out. That's why Jesus, when he found the man who was cutting himself, he said, what is your name? And his answer was, I am legion, or we are legion. He wanted to know the name, and that's how they cast it out. No one had ever cast out a demon without understanding the name, and, but you need to speak in order to do that. And no one had ever cast out a demon from a mute person, so the Jews said, only the Messiah can do this because only he would know the name. And that's exactly what happened in Matthew 12 when Jesus cast out a demon from a deaf and a mute man. The third miracle Jesus did was the healing of a man who was born blind. He said only the Messiah would offer the healing powers to create sight that had never been before. And Jesus did that in John chapter 9. So he comes doing all the wonders necessary to say, this is who I am. But their response, the Jews' response, was no different than Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh rejected, the Jews rejected, put Jesus on the cross. But what they did not know is when they put him on the cross, they were allowing him to fulfill the purpose they had come to fulfill. 
so he could die to defeat death so he could rise from the grave to offer eternal life to anyone who would become a part of his kingdom. When we look at the cross, if we were to look at the cross all the way back up on the, the Golgotha, we, what we would see is two crosses on either side that really represent the world today. The cross on one side looked at Jesus and said, it's your fault, I'm here. The cross on the other side said, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Both acknowledged Jesus, but only one acknowledged him with awe for who he truly was. This symbol right here, this symbol is carried by all kinds of people in our world. This symbol hangs in the homes and around the necks of people who acknowledge Jesus Christ died on a cross for the sins of the world. And many of those people will never experience his salvation. Because God's salvation does not come simply because we acknowledge. We don't experience his salvation simply acknowledging Jesus to be the son of God who died for the sins of the world. A lot of people know that. A lot of people understand that. We must surrender our lives to Jesus as the king of our world. That's when true salvation comes. Once we acknowledge Jesus with awe, that's when we as a group of people who have said, we have acknowledged the awesome, as Aaron said, the awesome God, or that was Pastor Mike said, the awesome God for who he is. Guess what we do now? We get together and we remind ourselves of who he is and we acknowledge him as our God and we sit in awe of him and then we anticipate he's coming back to set all things right. Oh, we acknowledge you for who you are. Pharaoh didn't. The Jews didn't. We sit with great awe and wonder of who you are. And that's why sometimes as, as our leaders up here, those, those hands go up in awe and in praise. Like what else do we do? Fall on our knees, bow on our heads and raise our hands to who he is. We are in awe of our good Jesus. And then we don't just stand here. We don't just stay here in this church all week long singing of, oh, we are in awe of you. No, we go live in awe. We take the awe with us and we anticipate he's coming back, which means people out there need to know. But so does this person right here. Because there's going to be things awaiting you this week when you walk out those doors. And you're going to wonder, is he really good? Yes, he's the creator of all good things. He is the creator. No, there's no place you can go where his power is not seen. There's no place you could go where his presence is not felt. And we run to the Bible, and what you'll find when you run to the Bible is that in the opening verses of Genesis, you'll find a garden, a river, and a tree of life. And if you run to the back of the Bible, and you read the closing verses of Revelation, guess what you find? A garden, a river, and the tree of life. Because the creator 
that came and made a perfect and complete world will return to redeem and make that perfect, that imperfect and incomplete world perfect and complete again. We won't get to do that. We could be a part of it, but we'll never make it perfect. We'll never make it complete. Listen, my Savior is not some politician that I'm waiting to get in office who's going to pass a law. No, no, there's no law that will ever be passed that will change the hearts of people. No, it's not. We have a Savior. We have a King. We have a Messiah. We have a Lord who's going to return, and He will set all things right because He's the one that set it in the first place. And we anticipate that coming home. We sat in the Grove House, as Pastor Mike mentioned on Thursday. And thank you so much for your responses. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I, I let the church know on Wednesday that the Lord had placed on my heart for us to spend Thursday fasting and praying for the needs of our town, country, everything. Just, you know what's happening and swirling around. We gathered in the Grove House, and Pastor Mike and I had met earlier to kind of work through the prayer meeting. And Pastor Mike led the first one, and, and immediately he, he opened with that passage that he read from Nehemiah, where we realized, hey, listen, we're not, we didn't gather to pray about the sins of other people, but we, we've gathered, and we are looking in the mirror. This is, this is our town. Our town has sinned. Our nation has, I, I, this is, this is we, this is me, this is not you guys, this is, this is me. And immediately that prayer meeting took a, a beautiful turn to where we weren't praying about anything other than, oh Jesus, we see you for who you are. We can't measure ourselves against someone else. We have to measure ourselves against your holiness, which leaves us all lacking. We began to pray, and oh, the prayers of those who gathered in that first hour, they, they've stuck with me ever since we left. Each one of those prayer meetings was just beautifully sweet as we reminded our own hearts, it's not them, it's me. And then we came to this verse in each of those meetings, and this is, this is the last thing I'm going to share. Titus chapter 2 says for the grace of god has appeared oh in the person of jesus the grace of god has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age Jesus came, the grace of God came, he appeared, and he brought salvation to all who would be a part of his kingdom. And for those who do, we have been trained, our bodies should be changing so that we live these self-controlled, not out of control, upright, not upside down, godly, not ungodly lives. That's what we should be doing now in this present age. But, waiting. For our blessed hope. And what's the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Same we that we're praying about, that's who we came 
to redeem from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous 